It's Friday, June 23rd. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, shocking new allegations from an IRS whistleblower who says that the Biden Justice Department engaged in acts of corruption all to protect Hunter Biden. We'll talk about what this whistleblower has to say. Second, Ford Motor Company just got a $9.2 billion loan from the U.S. government to build batteries for electric vehicles. But just one problem, consumers like you don't want those vehicles. Third, fire up your barbecues, ladies and gentlemen. The U.S. Department of Agriculture just approved bioreactor chicken from a laboratory. Yum. Those details coming up. Later, we close out the podcast with a listener question about why I joined the CIA. And my answer has to do with an old high school teacher. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. A whistleblower from the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, is alleging this morning that Hunter Biden got preferential treatment from his father's U.S. Department of Justice, despite the fact that both the FBI and the IRS had evidence of tax fraud by Hunter Biden and even bribery allegations by his father, Joe Biden. So here's what we know this morning uh, at this very early hour, as reported by the House Ways and Means Committee, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Free Beacon, the Washington Post, and the New York Post. And to be very clear, folks, this is coming from an IRS whistleblower named Mr. Gary Shapley, who sat down under oath with a bipartisan set of members of the House Ways and Means Committee, delivering 200 pages of testimony. So let's start with this, uh, what he said. Mr. Shapley said that back in 2018, the IRS was in the midst of an investigation into a foreign pornography website. I won't get into those details, but Hunter Biden was swept up into that inquiry. Well, about a year later, in November of 2019, the FBI learned of the now infamous Hunter Biden laptop that had been abandoned in Delaware in a repair shop. Well, the FBI confirmed a month later that it was, in fact, authentic. And that on that laptop, there was credible evidence of multiple crimes to include financial crimes or tax crimes against Hunter Biden and likely his father, Joe Biden, too. So the FBI brought in the IRS, which included Mr. Shapley and his team. Now, at one point, the teams were discussing the infamous email on the laptop where Hunter Biden said to his Chinese business partners that 10 percent of their deal would go to, quote, the big guy. End quote. Well, other emails and documents on that laptop confirmed that the big guy was almost certainly Joe Biden. But incredibly, one of the U.S. attorneys on the case, a gal named Leslie Wolf, shut down all questions about the big guy because, as she claimed, there was, quote, no specific criminality suggested, end quote. Well, the IRS whistleblower, again, Mr. Shapley, found that suggestion to be implausible and contrary to his 14 years as an investigator with the IRS. Plus, he said, on the laptop was an angry text uh, exchange between Hunter Biden and a Chinese business partner, where Hunter said this, quote, I am sitting here with my father, and we would like to understand why the financial commitment has not been fulfilled, end quote. Hunter then said, quote, I will make certain 
that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. Well, that text exchange shocked Mr. Shapley and his team, especially since they were told not to pursue the big guy line of inquiry. As Mr. Shapley said in his congressional testimony, quote, we couldn't believe that we saw that text message. That was more indication that the dad, Joe Biden, might have been involved, end quote. Well, there was then an effort to get Hunter Biden's uh, business partner, a fellow named Rob Walker, to talk about Joe Biden's involvement in these foreign business deals, which, by the way, Joe Biden to this day says that he was never involved with. Well, DOJ officials tried to stop this questioning of Mr. Walker, but at one point, an FBI agent was able to do so, and he spoke with Mr. Walker, asked him about Joe Biden's involvement, and Mr. Walker said, yes, Hunter Biden did set up meetings with his dad and his foreign business partners. Allegedly, at least according to this whistleblower, the FBI agent dropped that line of questioning like a hot potato. So, folks, this list of allegations just goes on and on. For instance, the DOJ uh, prevented IRS and FBI agents from searching a guest house that likely had evidence of Hunter's crimes. Meanwhile, that same U.S. attorney that I mentioned earlier, Leslie Wolf, she apparently, this is incredible, she tipped off Hunter Biden's defense attorneys telling them that IRS agents would soon search Hunter Biden's storage unit for evidence. So that blew the operation. Lastly, the IRS uh, whistleblower said under oath that Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss tried twice to bring felony charges against Hunter Biden for tax improprieties, but twice he was denied by other U.S. attorneys who, shockingly, were appointed by Joe Biden in those very districts. Now, to be fair, the U.S. Department of Justice is saying this morning that at no point was there any impropriety by any of these justice officials. Equally, the IRS is saying that, well, they can't comment on matters regarding individual taxpayers like Hunter Biden, but they take these whistleblower allegations very seriously and have referred the matter to their inspector general. So folks, I'm going to keep following this case closely and bring you additional details as I learn them, but that is what we know as of this morning. Now, in the meantime, I do want to note this. The plea deal that Hunter received this week that I told you about earlier, all right, that will be reviewed by a federal judge on Monday of next week. Now, if that judge approves the plea deal, it will almost certainly shut down further inquiry into any of these whistleblower claims, which if I could offer you my opinion and analysis, I suspect that that is exactly the point, right? Rush this plea deal through, which in turn will seal the records, and that will bury any further attempt by Congress or anyone else to get to the bottom of these allegations. Or, as if we were to remember, there's also the set of allegations by the FBI's confidential human source that I have been talking to you about regarding the Biden family corruption in Ukraine. In other words, boy, oh boy, this is some dirty pool. At least the allegation is. But I suppose that's Washington, D.C. At any rate, I will keep you posted and bring you details next week. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. Enjoy the following messages with one quick reminder. If you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I do not endorse it. 
Instead, it's a message coming from your podcast platform to you based on who they think you are. We'll be right back. Folks, there are two things that I speak a lot about on The Right Report. First, we live in a troubled world especially with China and the prospect of war with Beijing. Second, I talk about America's obesity crisis and how important it is to find ways to exercise and eat well. Thankfully, I've got a solution for both. ArcSeedKits.com, a provider of high-quality heirloom seeds that give you food security and a healthy body. Now, some of you have asked me, Brian, why should I pay a premium for heirloom seeds when I can buy cheaper stuff from online outlets or big box stores? Well, ARC Seed Kits give you the type of seeds that our grandparents had, right? You can save seeds from each year's garden crop and replant them year after year. Plus, ARC Seed Kits have all of the variety you need, folks. Listen to this. Six types of beans, four types of squash, seven tomatoes, two corn, two peas. Woo! Don't even get me started on the root crops, like beets and rutabag and carrots. So all in all, we're talking about 65 varieties of fruits and vegetables. And here's the best part. These seeds come from a family-owned farm in northern Michigan. No mystery seeds that you might get from an online or big box store. So do yourself a favor and buy the all-in-one seed kit. Go to arcseedkits.com. That's arc, like Noah's Ark, arcseedkits.com. Enter right as a promo code, that is W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get 10% off your order. So be prepared and invest in food security. Go to arcseedkits.com today. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards the future, the future of driving and the future of food. So let's start with driving. The U.S. government announced yesterday that a $9.2 billion loan backed by you, taxpayers, will go to Ford Motor Company, who will use that cash to build out three battery factories, one in Stanton, Tennessee, and the other two in Glendale, Kentucky. But there's just one problem. U.S. consumers like you are not that interested in buying these electric vehicles that the batteries are going to go into. So here's what we know this morning, as reported by The Wall Street Journal, CNN, The Verge, and an outfit called Electric. The U.S. Energy Department announced yesterday that it had agreed to a $9.2 billion loan to Ford in its joint venture with the South Korean battery company to build three battery factories, plus a new electric truck plant in Tennessee that will produce about 500,000 EVs or electric vehicles annually. So all told, these new factories should support 5,000 temporary construction jobs, another 7,500 permanent jobs, and pump out enough batteries to power 2 million EVs or electric vehicles annually by the year 2026. Now, it is unclear what types of batteries these plants will produce, and that actually matters because most current batteries involve a chemistry that it requires a lot of nickel and cobalt. And as listeners know, those are minerals that America doesn't largely have. But places like Indonesia and the Congo and China sure do meaning that we will have foreign dependence when it comes to making those batteries and our energy. But if this juice from the batteries comes from another chemistry, one that requires iron and phosphate, well, in theory, that could be easier to source from North America. But as ever, China would still control things like the refining of those raw minerals and creation of things called anodes and cathodes, 
right? And that would be true even with these final stages of battery production in Kentucky and Tennessee. Meanwhile, there is also this bigger problem, perhaps. U.S. consumers like you don't actually want to buy what these factories are producing, right? They don't want to buy EVs. So here's that news as reported by Market Watch and Reuters News Service. And let's start with something that you might not know. Less than 1% of the 250 million vehicles on the road right now in the U.S. are electric. Now, changing that will be a very slow process because about 17 million new cars are added each year. But as of last January, 93% of those 17 million were gas-powered. Now, part of the reason for that, that, that consumers don't want these EVs, well, one reason is price, right? Electric uh, tends to be much more expensive as compared to gas. Second, there's something or an issue that, well, many people call it a range anxiety. In other words, you can only go so far before you need to charge. And you may or may not have a fast charging station when you need to recharge. And that's why when consumers buy vehicles, they ultimately buy gas or hybrids, which have both gas and electric motors. In fact, data out last week from Kelly Blue Book show that of the top 10 electric cars sold in America, seven are hybrids and only three are fully electric. In other words, folks, if I could summarize this brief, automobile companies this morning and their partners in the U.S. government are building factories. Well, ultimately, they're producing stuff that you all don't want to buy at least not right now, of course, all using supply chains that will still remain firmly abroad with these various minerals. And that's even with these new factories in Kentucky and Tennessee. So I'll let you decide if that is smart or a bad use of $9.2 billion of your taxpayer dollars. Finally this morning, if you fire up that barbecue this weekend, I've got a new option for you. It's laboratory-grown meat. Mmm. So here's that delicious update as reported by Popular Science and CNBC. Yesterday, the U.S. Department of Agriculture gave two startup companies permission to begin selling lab-grown chicken. The companies, one of which is called Good Meat and the other is called Upside Foods. Well, those two companies then announced yesterday that each already had early orders. In fact, uh, this lab-grown stuff is going to be sent to chefs in Washington, D.C., and San Francisco, California. So if you're wondering uh, how this stuff is made, well, here we go. Scientists first harvest cells from a living animal or a fertilized egg. In other words, they're looking for stem cells. And then that stuff gets put into massive trays, right? And then those trays are placed inside a bioreactor, which of course sounds delicious. And then those stem cells are injected with nutrients like amino acids and sugars and vitamins and inorganic salts. Then this stem cell concoction just sits around and grows. Uh, Two to eight weeks later, a very lucky worker scoops out the meat clumps and forms it into something that you would otherwise recognize like a chicken breast or little chicken nuggets. Well, in a statement celebrating this moment, the CEO of Upside Foods said, quote, This approval by the USDA will fundamentally change how meat makes it to our table. End quote. Although that is not entirely true, right? Some environmental groups this morning are promising to oppose this new lab meat, 
all because of a recent study that was conducted by the University of California, Davis, that showed this lab-grown meat is actually worse for the environment than, well, actual animals. Plus, there's also the difficult, if not troubled, experience of meatless meats to consider in this. Bloomberg News reported yesterday that eggless eggs and baconless bacon and other fake but somehow real meats are suffering from some pretty serious market declines and a lack of investment. So there you have it. More options for you to choose from, folks. Either a real barbecued chicken or a real bioreactor chicken. Either way, welcome to the future. With that, my friends, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break. Remembering that if you don't hear my voice on these next messages, I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. On Wednesday, Bruce in New York asked me why I left the CIA, which prompted Caroline in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to ask me what got me started there to begin with. Why did I choose to apply? Good question, Caroline. So I was asked about this a while back, and I would say two things prompted me to apply for a position at the CIA. First, growing up, I I was always curious about the world. Right? If there was a, a hill, I don't know why, but I would always want to see what was on the other side. Uh, or if there was a, a strange culture or, or a religion that I didn't understand, I wanted to experience or, or, or read about it, if nothing else. But I also had some great teachers who encouraged me in my life to just go out and explore. The first was my mom, who went back to college when I was a, a young boy and became a special education teacher. And then I had another teacher. It was a a man who is no longer with us. His name was Earl Trigstead. But my goodness, was this fellow a special man. He was born in 1933, grew up in Chicago, joined the Navy, and he served on the aircraft carrier Roosevelt during the Korean War. He went on to become a football coach and then a teacher, teaching government and history specifically. And that's where I got to meet him in high school. And I remember it vividly the very first day. Mr. Trigstead, Trigger, as we used to call him, He looked at us and he told us all to shut up. And then we all sat there very quietly and he stared at us for what felt like an hour. And then he turned around to the chalkboard and he wrote two words, eternal vigilance. And then he turned back around and he pointed at those words and he said to us, for the rest of this class, for the rest of this semester, and for the rest of your lives, you will remember those words. Because your government will ruin you and your freedoms unless you are eternally vigilant. And I was probably 16 years old at the time, maybe 17, but I'll tell you, that man and that moment are burned into my mind like a brand on a cowhide. Because he was right, right? For the rest of that class, he taught us about how our government could serve the people or how it could ruin the people. We talked about power and corruption and good versus evil. And that's because I think ultimately Trigger came from that generation of men and women who just got it, right? They lived through the era of real Nazis, right? Real fascists and tyranny. They faced it in war. They died from it. And while they loved this country so much because of that noble fight and ultimately winning it, they also understood that we were an imperfect union, 
right? That even in America, otherwise good people could go very bad. And the only way to stop that from happening was eternal vigilance. And that included joining the military or running for office, whatever it was, the point was keep the government honest. And by doing that, you got to be a part of it. Well, Trigger passed away about five years ago. Uh, He was diagnosed with brain cancer and the Lord took him home just four months later. But what a legacy he left behind. Serving his country, coaching football, raising his four kids, lovely wife, Jeannie. And for all the young men and women that were in his classroom like me, he left a legacy of how to live with integrity and honor and love of country. And I tell you, I, I think he injected that pretty deeply into my veins. Because a couple of years later in college, the CIA seemed like a pretty good fit. I got to travel the world, you know, learn how to recruit spies and steal secrets. But also, I got to join the government and learn how to keep it honest. And so I did. So for what it's worth, I remember Trigger this morning, most especially as we were talking about allegations of corruption and political influence at the Department of Justice. And I'll tell you, I don't think Trigger would be surprised at all about any of that news. Instead, and I can see him doing it, he would throw his arm up in the air and he would say with his perfect grovelly voice, "Ah, eternal vigilance. Uh, And as always, Trigger would be right. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you on Monday, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. To the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. <laughs>